Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have attorney Josh Brown with us to discuss whether Title IX, the federal civil rights law, prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity essentially protecting individuals who identify as LGBTQ+. Hi, Josh. Afternoon. Jack, have you ever had the experience that I've had uh, too many times? I might be in a restaurant that's uh, new to me, and I go to the bathroom and walk into the ladies' room. Yeah, it's it's funny you would mention that. I did that twice when I was in college. I, I had my head down. I wasn't watching where I was going. I walk into a restroom and I see a couch that wasn't there the last time I was there. I'm thinking, this isn't where I'm supposed to go, which then presents the next problem. You know what that problem is? What's that? How do you get out of though without anybody seeing you? Well, I know for, at least for me, uh, there's a um, moment of panic, Mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, I flee from uh, that restroom, whether, one, there's somebody in there, or uh, whether somebody may come in, but, you know, that raises the question, um, you know, how do parents feel about uh, their boys or girls going to the bathroom with opposite sex in schools if we have this mindset that it's wrong, that we're in the wrong place and we need to get out of there right away. Well, I I have two things to say about that, uh, both based on experience. The first is in Italy, I remember a lot of bathrooms and restaurants were, let's say, co-ed. But the doors to the stalls were ceiling to floor. So when you walked into the stall, you had complete privacy. So the only part that was truly co-ed, so to speak, was the sink area. So you might be washing your hands next to a woman. The other one is, I understand it, when Upper Arlington built its new high school, it has all co-ed bathrooms. And they're along the lines of what I've described as happening in, in Italy. So we have this immediate notion of something's wrong, but it seems you can design it in a way that everybody's needs are taken care of in a good way. Which brings us to the global issue of Title IX and our expert here, Josh Brown. Does Title IX require schools to accommodate certain individuals uh, with regard to their choice of bathrooms? Uh, The 11th Circuit recently ruled on that, and uh, so uh, the United States Supreme Court has not ruled on it. But the, uh, in the 11th Circuit, they decided that Title IX does not require that. So Title IX, as I said, is a civil rights law passed in 1972. Uh, I remember Title IX. I was um, a college athlete, and um, sports were, at least in college, m- sports teams were dominated by men. 
And Title IX was a way to give uh, women's sports in college an, an equal amount of funding and an equal opportunity for women, and really was a, a, a very positive um, civil rights law. Seems to me, uh, Josh, it has expanded a lot since then. Can you talk about how much? I can talk about how it's, how it's been expanded to in some areas. <laughs> so, uh, because you're talking about something that's evolved over 50 years, so um, uh, it would be a, a book's worth of material to talk about everything, but. Uh, in the areas that I'm involved in right now, um, during the Obama administration, the U.S. Department of Education put out a uh, memo to schools K through 12 across the country, and that memo said that their interpretation of Title IX was that. If you uh, dis discriminate, which isn't really the best word, but if you um, don't treat somebody as the gender that they are preferring to be identified with, then there'll be consequences. There'll be loss of federal money, and there'll be investigations from law enforcement agencies. And... Then during the Trump administration in 2017, President Trump rescinded that opinion. And then when President Biden became president, they issued another memo that was very similar to President Obama's, but it went even further. And then some federal agencies went further and their interpretations of the interpretation. So the Department of Agriculture, for example, uh, threatened to pull school lunch money. There are a few other federal departments that issued certain threats to schools. And then 22 states sued the federal government based on those interpretations of interpretations. And that case was in Tennessee and the and where that case is right now is the federal judge has issued an injunction on the enforcement of the interpretations of the federal agencies so they can't punish schools for not adopting those interpretations at this time. And that, uh, I'm sorry, Jack, uh, my understanding of the Tennessee lawsuit is that injunction uh, is only applicable to the plaintiffs. It's not a nationwide uh, injunction like sometimes we've seen of recent where the federal judges uh, shut a governmental policy down nationally. So uh, when I brought this up with some school officials, they have tried to um, explain to me something similar to what you just said. But if you read the opinion, the, the judge is saying, there, there's a section, um, when you want an injunction, you have to make four arguments. And one of those four arguments is your likelihood of success. And when the judge issued his opinion on the injunction, his opinion in the likelihood of success section was very strongly worded and very broad. So I consider it a nationwide injunction. And um, I think that... Um, uh, 
you'd be taking a big risk if you were to defy the injunction right now. If you if you said, well, it didn't apply to us because we weren't one of the plaintiffs, well, I think. Let me, um, let me tell you from my reading of the judge's decision. First of all, I didn't see that Ohio was a part of that case. They are, yeah. They are? Yeah. So the injunction applies in Ohio. Uh, based on the theory you just gave that it may only apply to the plaintiffs, we are one of the plaintiffs. Right, okay. <laughs> so what the judge said, which I think is pretty reasonable approach is he didn't know if other states wanted to be enjoined they weren't a part of the case and may be other states are a little more tolerant of the regulations that the federal government is trying to put in place and that seemed to me to be the reasoning behind not making it a national injunction if other plaintiffs wanted in meaning other states they could join the lawsuit well before we go any further let's clarify because we have as Josh has referred to an interpretation of an interpretation. But really what's going on with the Biden administration is that deference has to be given to the gender identity of a student as opposed to the sex assigned at birth, correct? In other words, let me put it to you another way. If a child says... If a child who has the word male on his birth certificate identifies as a girl, the school has to accommodate that gender preference, correct? There, ha there are certain conditions that have to be met before they have to accommodate. Um, well, let's it has just, to be I, persistent I'm, and insistent. And I, there's I don't, don't like want to go through all the qualifications, yeah. but I'm just trying to make it clear <clears throat> for the audience what the issue is. Um, I would say... With the qualifications, that's an accurate statement. Okay. <laughs> Let's look at what uh, <clears throat> Title IX says for a minute. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So those are the words of the statute. What I think you're talking about with Josh Jack is is that the Biden administration has said that on the basis of sex would or could refer to um, uh, transgender right uh, gender stereotypes is the the route they take to get there that just you know uh, the idea that um, a boy has to wear boys clothes for example is a gender stereotype and discriminate based on that basis is uh, discrimination under Title IX. And uh, more so than just a political argument, uh, that is based upon a Supreme Court case, a bet in a different field, in the field of um, labor and employment. But the, um, the Bostock case, which yes. I know you're familiar with, Jack, in that case, um, a um, child welfare uh, coordinator who was gay uh, uh, claimed that he was fired. He was uh, playing on a uh, in a gay softball league, um, and the um, he argued it was based upon discrimination. And Judge um, Gorsuch was Gorsuch, it? yes, and and Justice Roberts um, um, agreed in the decision that the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964 just prohibits discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. What Biden's administration did is it's taken that case and said that if this gets to the Supreme Court, 
it's likely that the uh, Title IX will be interpreted in the same way. Is that an oversimplification, Josh? That, I would say, is a, um accurate summary of their position. Uh, there's a whole section in the Tennessee lawsuit where um, that is there's an argument uh, that would be the opposing argument to that. Um, Bostock, by its own terms, was limited to the facts of that case. They specifically said, we don't uh, make any decision that this applies outside of this context. And so uh, the uh, Biden administration and the federal agencies have relied on Bostock heavily, but that would be in defiance of the limitations of Bostock under its own terms. I well, I think lawyers do that all the time, though. We search for a case. I don't know if you were going to go there, um, Jack, but um, that um, that we want to apply to the facts of our case because we can't find one right on point. But both statutes prohibit sex discrimi- discrimination. One uses the phrase on the basis of sex and the other uses the phrase because of sex. I think that Gorsuch and uh, Roberts are going to have a difficult time um, uh, applying some other rationale or reasoning, not that I think they won't do it. I don't think that our uh, Supreme Court in its conservative makeup has been too friendly to these issues, but I can't blame the Biden administration from doing what lawyers do, which is apply the closest case we've got to the facts of our case. You know, what I want to do, if you'll both indulge me, is get away from trying to split hairs as to what Bostic, am I saying that right? Bostic stands for. What I'm more concerned about is the acrimony around this subject of transgender kids, gender dysphoria, et cetera, because we've seen legislation in Tennessee Arkansas, they're trying to pass, I think a similar bill is being proposed in Ohio. It's all this talk about what's happening in the schools, parents aren't, are being cut out of the pattern, et cetera. I think that's the, that's the subject for discussion. So it seems to me what I've been reading, and Josh, I know you filed a complaint against uh, members of the Hilliard Uh, Board of Education, and I see a lot of discussions about things that those parents are angry about, those, those plaintiffs. Being upset about, gee, teachers asked kids what pronouns they want to use. Um, Discussions about teachers wearing a badge that says, I'm here parenthetically to talk about how you feel about yourself in terms of gender. I'm, I'm kind of wondering where this all emanates from. And I say this from a position of sensitivity in that Gonzo and I had a wonderful woman on the show months back who was a mother for a transgender girl. So if my child is going through all that, why wouldn't I appreciate what that school is doing? So the facts of our case are that we had a teenage girl 
who attempted to commit suicide multiple times. Later, the child's parent received communication from a person at the school, a personal communication, that used a different name in referring to her child and used um, pronouns that were the opposite of her sex. The child was also um, known to be experiencing severe emotional trauma at the school, but not at home. So once the parent um, saw this uh, communication that was sent to their house, the parent became aware that the child was <clears throat> uh, experiencing uh, either some sort of gender dysphoria or some sort of a social um, phenomenon going on that was causing the distress and the parent was then able to take measures to treat the child and to help the child work through that situation. She, the parent had met with school officials multiple times and the school officials had uh, not indicated that this was happening at the school. So our argument is that the the uh, parent has a right, which is well established under the Constitution, uh, under the principle of substantive due process, which is fundamental rights. Parents have the right to direct the upbringing of their child. There's a whole subsection of that area of law that gives the parents the right to make medical decisions for their children. Uh, this, The judge that we have in this case, Judge Watson, in 2018, ruled that people have a right to change their sex as it appears on their birth certificates. And he based that on a constitutional right of privacy. The theory was if you want to uh, manifest as a, as a particular sex or gender, then you have a right to privacy to the fact that that uh, wasn't uh, the sex that was on your birth certificate at one time or that that um, is not your biological sex. But that doesn't apply to children because this is different. You, adults have a right to privacy. Children do not have a right to privacy. The parents own the right to privacy. And so when you diagnose and treat a child for gender dysphoria, the, ch the parents have a right to know that's happening at the very least. But this isn't even, it's because the school and their filings are framing it as whether there's a duty to inform on their part. They argued that anything short of blackmailing the child to not tell people uh, about their gender dysphoria, they're allowed to do. Anything short of coercion I'm towards not, the child. I'm not following mm -hmm. what you're saying about the parents, about what the school is saying. Make that a little clearer yeah. for me. So um, the, uh, <clears throat> the school is arguing that they're framing it as whether there's a duty to inform the parents when they see uh, manifestation of gender dysphoria at school. But that's not what this is about. This is about whether they have whether they have to be honest with the parents when they do talk to the parents. So any other medical condition or any other mental health condition, a parent has a right 
to ask and a right to get an answer, but they don't have the school doesn't have a duty to inform. So, um, in this case, in our case, they literally lied to the parent. They took measures to hide the fact that it was happening. Now, as bolster to bolster our arguments that this is happening not just as an isolated incident, but as a policy at the school, we showed the judge instances where they had asked in a survey to children, what pronouns do you want us to use? And as a separate question, what pronouns do you want us to use with your parents? And then there was a board that was displayed that had uh, definitions of uh, sexual content and <clears throat> uh, that were off the curriculum, that were not standards of the school. And they were, it was a school display. It wasn't a student display. It was, a, it was something that a teacher had put up to educate children, uh, which was something that she had <clears throat> come up with on, completely on her own. Now on the badges, the problem with the badges is that when you are affirmatively hiding information from parents and lying to them, then you can't go out and collect that information and then keep it from the parent. So our argument is they shouldn't be allowed to solicit conversations with students about their private medical and mental health affairs if that's not going to be shared with the parents or that the parents are going to be lied to about that information. I'm struck by what you're saying because, and forgive me, I'm even skeptical of everything you're saying because it sounds as if there is an overall policy at the school to do things in a secretive manner. I just find that hard to swallow. I can see where teachers come upon a student who's facing an unsupportive parent and lending a sympathetic ear. So I, I'm just struck by the gravity of what you're saying. The uh, badges that they put out, okay, let me back up a second. So we tried to avoid a lawsuit in this situation. We wrote letters to the school. Um, it all started with a, a meeting with the parents with the superintendent. The superintendent said to the parents, under Title IX, a school official would be putting themselves in great je legal jeopardy if they outed a child to the child's parents. <clears throat> and then we wrote a letter to the school and the superintendent, which was answered by their lawyers. And the letter asked, you know, is this true? Is this the school's policy? And they said, we have, quote, a default expectation, which is nothing. There's no such thing as a default expectation in the law. <laughs> so, so we have a default expectation to tell the parents. So we wrote back a second letter that said, okay, here's some instances where this default expectation has not been met. And you've not followed that default expectation. Also, in her first letter, the school's attorney wrote that there were exceptions for health and safety. So in our second letter, one of our points as to, okay, is this you know, falling under your default expectation or not, she wrote that there's these health and safety exceptions. Well, if you look at the badge that the, that the teachers are carrying, the badge comes in a little instructional packet. 
Mm-hmm. And in the instructional packet, it says, do not wear this badge if you're not a safe person. Mm-hmm. And it defines a safe person as somebody who, ha- who holds certain views on LGBT issues. And so we asked, okay, if a, if a parent disagrees with the idea of providing gender-affirming treatment, does that mean that, or if they hold any particular view, is that a health and safety exception? And that's when the school refused to answer, and that's when we were forced to file the lawsuit. Well, let me, again, I'm struck by how severe those allegations are in this it almost sounds conspiratorial in one way. Well, on it's the part it's of the very school. public. You know, the the National School Counselors Association has said very publicly and given advice on how to hide gender dysphoria from parents. The National Teachers Union, which is NEA, which is the parent of the Hilliard Education Association, so it's part of the same organization. They have put out guidelines on how to hide gender dysphoria from parents as well. So it's not a conspiracy. It's a very open thing well, that's I, happening. I'm, I'm going to quibble with you. I haven't read that document. At the same time, i got to believe the devil is in the details. So before I would accept that statement from you as accurate, I want to, I want to read it. Forgive me. But I'll fall back, Gonzo, on the discussion we had with Melissa McLaurin months back. Now, Melissa is the mother of twins. One, they're like 17 or 18, but the one decided at an early age that he identified as a girl. And the one thing that was really striking about Melissa's story was that as schools were supportive of her daughter, as, as that child now identifies, the child blossoms. Melissa was convinced that it's only when the child has a safe and secure environment that the child can thrive. So that leads me to my question. Is the problem really as stark as you say, or are these teachers merely being supportive in a situation where maybe they're not getting adequate support at home? Well, we had two girls attempt to commit suicide. Well, that doesn't so, mean. Hold on for a second. That doesn't mean the school is necessary. You're making the big leap. The school is the. Aren't you making the big leap that the school has? Well, you has cut me off uh, as soon as I start talking. So. Well, you know what? I'll apologize for that. But <laughs> but if you're going to make if you're going to suggest that the school was responsible, you've got a lot of talking to do. Yeah. Um, we had two girls that attempted to commit. Well, one threatened to commit suicide. One actually did uh, attempt to commit suicide. Uh, both will testify that their condition and their mental anguish was aggravated by the way uh, they were treated by the teachers. Um, in both situations, uh, the school affirmatively withheld the treatment they are providing to the children from their parents. In both situations, the parents will testify that they would have participated and helped in the treatment had they known what was going on. In both situations, they will testify that they sought psychiatric and counseling uh, after uh, this information came to light and that they're better off now. In both situations, they will testify that they moved out of the district because of the way their children were being treated and the way it was being kept secret from them and that they have Im- that their condition has improved since they moved. So it's not me saying it. I think that we have uh, strong testimony on this. And... Um, 
uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may, but we're going to put that testimony on the record, and it's already on the record. Josh, when you talk about um, gender dysphoria, my understanding that is a mental health issue. It, it uh, has a certain definition. Um, not sure if I remember correctly, but it's um, it's basically an issue a child has for at least six months, and there's specific counseling and psychological um, treatment for it. Are you saying that the one, a teacher in the school was able to diagnose that, was competent to diagnose it, and two, started some type of psychological treatment? Because if that's correct, then I agree 100% that that school and that teacher are definitely overstepping their boundaries. What I guess I'm falling in Jack's camp is if it's just a student talking to a teacher about issues that they may have, whether they're gay or Mm -hmm. transgender, and they can't talk to their parents, wouldn't you as a parent want your children to have somebody to talk to? And isn't that the natural person, a coach or a teacher? Yeah, we actually completely agree with you. And that doesn't contradict what uh, we're talking about in our lawsuit at all. Um, In this situation, there was no request for privacy. um, And the school uh, has mentioned to us, and I I agree with them, that in the context, well, when they said that there was a health and safety exception to their default expectation, they specifically said that a situation would be where there's confidentiality in a counseling situation. Okay, so we don't, and we specifically said in our lawsuit, we are not talking about situations where there's confidentiality established because of counseling. And that counseling doesn't have to come from an actual counselor. Uh, But what our lawsuit addresses is when you're not talking about a confidential situation, you're talking about something that is well known in the school. It's... they're using a different name. They're using different pronouns. They're doing it in front of people. That's not confi- that's not confidential at all. But then they're taking affirmative measures to uh, hide that information from the parents. That's specifically what we're addressing. I also, having raised three kids uh, through their uh, difficult, um, you know, adolescence. Uh, I guess, in a sense, find it a little bit hard to believe that there's this thing that's hidden in a school because almost everything that happens in a school comes out one way or another and if they're doing a survey some student is taking that survey home or talking to the parents if um you know if they are calling a kid by a certain pronoun that that it just can't be contained in in what i understand is the school it's part of our arguments actually that um a policy that tries to hide just delays the parents being able to treat and take care of their children. I, I think part of this is a parent problem too, and I'm I'm not I'm not critical of, of parenting in any respect. Um, sometimes it's hard to get teenagers to talk to yeah, you. It's yeah. hard to get middle school. Uh, that's why I think you have to be very careful on any policy that chills a child's um, uh, ability to talk about their issues, but. It seems to me if you want to change school policy, you start at the school board level. It's a, it, and I know you know nice. politics, but it's, it's not a, that hard to get on a school board. It's just, so we're transitioning into a, a discussion about politics of schools and how they work, which I'm glad to do. 
the school boards have been completely neutered. Uh, the teachers unions run the schools right now. Um, we actually, in Hilliard, uh, there was an effort. I live in Hilliard. That's why I say we. Well, I live just outside of Hilliard. I live in the Hilliard School District. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there was an effort to get um, people who favored parents' rights on the school board. They got a majority, and it, you know, I think arguably it hasn't changed anything. And, um, <clears throat> but you also have a pretty favorable environment. You've got a state school board that's basically run by a Republican governor. Uh, I think that you might have mentioned your lawsuit or to the me. The school board once. doesn't have any authority over the schools. They're just a, a basically a best practices sure. institution. But you cited in your... The, the schools are run by the superintendents. Mm-hmm. They have uh, almost all the power. Uh, school boards um, from... Have I would recommend to parents out there if they want to change school policy, then it does make sense to go and get school board people elected that support the policies. It's not a worthless and meaningless endeavor, but I believe that the balance of power has shifted away from school boards towards administrators at the school, and that teachers unions in particular are exercising uh, an incredible amount of influence on the administrators at the school. A lot of them are the administrators at the school. I mean, the teachers are the biggest and most important employees of the school. And and I'm our lawsuit is not shy about the fact that the instructions and the guidance for hiding gender dysphoria, as we have claimed, comes directly from the NEA, from their actual manual. So... Um, <clears throat> uh, I think your original point was, well, why can't they just go get their their preferred uh, school board members elected? I'm not saying it does nothing, but I think that the balance of power has shifted away from parents towards administrators, and and um, that is something that – see, what our lawsuit is about is about the administrative authority of the school, which is a well-established concept in law. There's a long history – I shouldn't say long, but there's a – since the mid-20th century – there are there's a history of cases that establish the administrative authority of the school. You can't tell them what their curriculum can be. A parent can't tell uh, the school when the school closes and opens. There's a whole list of things. Then there's parents' rights, which goes back thousands of years, and that is a uh, a traditional fundamental right of parents. There's a line in between the administrative authority of the school and the parents. In our, in our lawsuit walks that line. We don't know exactly where the line is because no court has ever ruled on actually withholding information outside the context of where there's abuse or neglect. So if there's abuse or neglect, you have no doubt you can withhold information from the parents. But otherwise, this is a situation where there's no established abuse or neglect. They are affirmatively hiding information and lying to parents. So they are arguing as long as we're not coercing the children to say something, then we are within our administrative authority. Now, I, I think that is um, an incorrect legal ar- legal argument, and I, and I mean to prove it in this sure. lawsuit. And I, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to get into the depths of your particular lawsuit. I, I'd rather yeah. talk in general terms. But you know what you've done is you've gone to the court system to get your relief, and people would say. The relief you're seeking, I would feel better about it if it's a community decision, which is unfortunately a political problem. 
that the school boards, the superintendents are in the best position to dictate policy, not a federal judge in Tennessee. Um, but we are seeing more and more now in our society that the courts are taking over. Oh, well, taking bunch of over them. legislative well, policy, especially They're, when it comes to administrative agencies. The uh, so throughout the mid to late 20th century, the Chevron Doctrine was a very powerful doctrine that gave deference to administrative agencies on in their interpretations of law. The Supreme Court um, slowly but surely has thrown out Chevron. The Ohio Supreme Court not only threw it out, but threw it out under no uncertain terms that this had no basis in law. <laughs> you know, it was an extremely w- harshly worded opinion in Ohio. So we don't have Chevron in Ohio now, which is um, a great thing. But um, this is part of the mid-20th century moving to uh, deference for administrative agencies away and moving away from that policy. Let, let me change the contour of the conversation. You're talking about the... I had one more point on that last thing. <laughs> well, go ahead. I'll save mine. And I think Josh and I agree on these things. The, 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 the reason for all that in my mind is because our legislatures do nothing with the most important issues yeah. of our time. And they allow these agencies to well, rule because it provides them cover. There's more to it than that, too. It's the legislators. They do nothing. And they write bills so that the administrative agencies fill in the gaps. So when you're the agency that wrote half the law, then you have, you're going to get some deference on having been the one to write both the law itself and the, re- and the OAC, the administrative code that goes with it. But on top of that, another problem, which I uh, agree with uh, many, you know, I want to make sure stay within my ethical boundaries, but too many judges come from the attorney general's office and come from administrative agencies. They don't understand uh, the world outside of administrative agencies. So uh, <clears throat> there's just too many prosecutors and too many AGs and too many people. Their, their whole career was they were lawyer for the Department of Transportation. Uh, that are judges, and they just they have a very uh, administrative, favorable favorable way of looking at at the law. I would probably agree with much of what you just said, but I think that's getting far afield. Yeah, <laughs> you've used some pretty powerful words in your complaint, so I'm going to ask you two pointed questions. Sure. The first one is you say that parents were unaware that children were diagnosed and treated for gender dysphoria. Wait a minute. A teacher is treating someone for gender dysphoria. Tell me more about that. So um, there's a type of treatment. It's called gender-affirming care. And uh, it is a subject of much debate throughout the country and throughout the psychological community and uh, psychiatric community, there's much debate over the way to handle uh, a person who has gender dysphoria. And there is a, uh, a large group of people who believe that the way to treat it is to affirm their um, identity. And there's people who believe that uh, you should that well let's put it this way the research shows that not everybody who experiences gender dysphoria and identifies as opposite sex does so in the long term 
And even the people that agree with gender. My question is simple. Who's, who's providing that treatment at the schools? Well, when you affirm their, their identity, you're treating their, uh, their condition. Okay, of so you're dysphoria. using treating to say if. It's if, called gender affirming treatment. Okay, but mm-hmm. as an example, if Joe comes to school and says, I want to be called Joan Ellen, in your view, that would be treating gender dysphoria. Could be. I think that um, just one time saying I want I want that would probably not be sufficient for to, to constitute a diagnosis. Look, I'm, I'm just know. trying to get a handle on. Yeah. When you say treatment, that can mean something very modest. That can mean something significant. Yeah, yeah. Are teachers actually providing psychoanalysis or psychological counseling? Well, in, in our case, um, we had the student was ex- exposed to a certain teacher and she's going to testify that these questions became answers very quickly. She had questions about what she was going through. She's going through puberty. She's going through mm-hmm. uh, confusion about who she was. Josh, that's not my question. Mm-hmm. My question is, is the teacher providing psychological counseling? Well, the answer is yes, and I'm uh, supporting that statement by saying in, in this particular situation, this was a girl who was in the, the questioning phase and was struggling with these issues. And the teacher jumped straight to, okay, you need to take a male name. Okay, you need to uh, take male pronouns. And then started uh, push, I hate to say the word pushing because that's kind of a, got a lot of loaded stuff in it. But, um, and I doubt the teacher would agree with that characterization. But nonetheless, the student feels she was pushed into accepting these things. It made things worse for her. And uh, we anticipate that's how she's gonna testify. Well, I'm concerned like Gonzo about non-licensed personnel providing treatment. So I share that concern, but I guess we need more facts to real. I mean, I understand that's what this this child would say. I'm interested in in hearing both sides. The other yeah, yeah. the other big that's word what the, that's what the lawsuit's for. The <laughs> other big word is hide. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean? Is it a matter of gee, Mrs. McGillicuddy? We're not going to tell you what Susan has been talking to us about, or is it a matter of actually lying to Mrs. McGillicuddy? Well, the uh, the school's counselors association, the teachers union, is very open and very frank about the fact that they don't think that uh, the parents have a right to this information. Uh, they refer to uh, parents um, as <clears throat> uh, non-supportive. Um, so their view is very open about the fact that this information should be hidden from the parents. Uh, they don't. They don't make any bones about that. Do they mm-hmm. draw a distinction between unsupportive parents and supportive parents? Uh, sometimes, and and so some of the evidence that I have collected, um, sometimes that that uh, designation is, or that distinction is, uh, at least put out on the table, but it's not made clear. Uh, for example. Uh, how would you even keep the information from the parent and then also interview them and talk to them about what they believe about gender dysphoria? You know, I think that would be, uh, so I don't think they've, when they explain it, I, to me, it's not explained all the way, put it that way. But um, uh, the, um, the statements that are very public and very much accessible um, are about keeping it from parents generally and, it's not made clear to me that there's some process by which you determine that a parent is unsupportive before you take those steps of, 
of uh, hiding it from the parents. <laughs> when we think about this idea about um, outing the child, so to speak, <clears throat> do you need or do you want a policy that uh, if a child comes to school and says they would prefer the pronoun they, that the staff and the teachers tell the parent that that's been a request? You're asking if the plaintiffs would prefer that? Yeah, and not necessarily your plaintiffs, but but it, but is that kind of the general idea that um, that the school lets the parent know that this has been a request? And maybe the parent already knows, maybe yeah. the parent doesn't. So when it comes to the duty to, do, to inform, which is what you're talking about, uh, there is a Maryland case on point. Uh, Maryland, as a state, has a written policy that they will not tell the parents, that they have no duty to inform the parents. Sure. And that um, has withstood legal challenge thus far. <clears throat> our situation is different. Our, our situation addresses the parent asks for the information. The parent visits the school, talks about the child, parent-teacher conference, and the teachers are using different pronouns and different names with the parents than they are at mm -hmm. the school. So we believe that that process of what uh, I'm, you know, collectively calling it hiding information, but the 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 process of representing things different to the parents than you do at the school that is unconstitutional in our view and a violation of the parents' uh, due process rights. I think that as a parent, I would like to know if that's happening. I, I, I sympathize with that, but. It seems to me that some states are going further than that, and they're prohibiting those pronouns. The, uh, the state of Florida is trying to pass a law, Jack, that says that you can only use the pronoun associate, associated with the, the sex at birth. And uh, to me, I think that goes a little far, but is that uh, the next step in, in kind of your your process, Joe, uh, Josh? It's irrelevant to our lawsuit. Yeah. Um, also... I stand on the thought that um, these students need protections. Do you see any federal protection rights that, that the students should have? That's beyond the scope of our lawsuit. Um, so you're asking me if I personally believe that? Or? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Is, it, is mm -hmm. it something that you could see if the Supreme Court condoned it under... I think uh, constitutional standards and there was a statute that provided that um, protections that that might be a good thing for a lot of the students. I generally like the idea that uh, schools would bend over backwards to make sure that children get any uh, mental health treatment that they need. But I don't think parents can be excluded from that process unless you're talking about an abuse and neglect situation. Tough issues, Jack. I don't remember um, them predominating uh, my children when they went to school and certainly not when I was in school. Um, it seems to me that it's something that's come up in the last few years and it's, it's, it's fast and heavy. But Josh, I appreciate what you do. You take on some tough issues um, um, and I'm sure you got uh, your critics and your supporters. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, you're a friend of mine, you always will be. So um, appreciate that. thanks for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate having you on the show as well, Josh, and I appreciate what you do. Um, I think it's important to be protecting the rights of parents. I get that. I don't, I don't think there's a parent in the world who's going to argue with that. And my, my 
questions you were rather pointed, uh, but I just want you to understand that I'm I'm a little skeptical because I'm 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 trying to find where the reality is versus the hyperbole, and I'm really on guard about that when I see legislature legislatures passing laws, and then I read what the American Academy of Pediatricians have to say about this, and I'm seeing a disconnect. So for that, agree with that yeah. so I'm worried for that reason. So I, I, I agree with the bottom line of parental knowledge, but man, the devil is in the details. I would agree with that. So anyway, again, thanks for being with us. Um, our thanks also to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this to be more than a show about just us. We want it to be about all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.